0: Okay, if, uh, if there was one doctrine that in all honesty, something a doctrine the Bible teaches, that in all honesty uh, that you would say is confusing to you and makes absolutely no sense, that maybe in all honesty you would say, I hope nobody ever asks me about that because if they do, I don't know how to explain it. I don't even get it. Um, for me, for a long time, I would have answered that this way, that that was the doctrine of the Trinity. That's the thing that confused me. Um, and so while I'm going to set this up a little bit more, I need a little bit of help I just remembered. So I want to know if Corey and Clayton, If you guys could come up here, take this thing, and just move it to the center of the stage. I would appreciate that. I forgot to uh, draft my help. Yeah, with the white facing these guys, kind of on this line, Corey, right here. On the carpet so but that was a doctrine a teaching for a long time perfect thank you guys that was something for a long time that i almost was afraid of um not just me Immanuel kant the great famed philosopher wrote that the doctrine of the trinity provides nothing absolutely nothing of practical value even if one claims to understand it and i think we would all have to admit that this is hard to understand and probably a lot of us hold this at arm's length, right? We'd re- almost rather not deal with it. I had somebody after first service who said this to me. Here was, this was his approach. Uh, you can't understand it, so don't even try. Don't even try. Um, and I, So my guess is I think a lot of us are there. We don't get it. We think it doesn't even have practical value to me. And dear Lord, please let, don't let anybody ever ask me to sit down and try to explain that. In preaching, there's a thing that we say that if it's a mist up here, it's a fog out there, right? So if the Trinity is a mist up here and somebody were to ask you to explain it, you just know it would be a fog to them, right? And so we just would rather not try. Um, I think the doctrine of the Trinity is almost like the weird uncle who just sits in the corner and everybody kind of ignores and just hopes he kind of keeps to himself. By the way, I don't have a weird uncle. I loved all of my uncles. I'm not quite sure. Does anybody know where that came from? Um, Roderick Luke, he wrote this. He said, for most people, and sadly most Christians also, the Trinity is the great unknown. Even if the Trinity could be understood, of what practical value, even religious value, would it have for ordinary people? And I think that's a legitimate question, something I think we've all asked. I want to tell you what really changed this for me um, was my work with international students. Because one of the most frequent questions I got from people all over the world was, can you tell me about that Trinity thing that you guys believe? I had Buddhists ask me that. I had Hindus ask me that. I had atheists ask me that for whom it was totally irrational and they're like, this is the reason we don't even believe in religion because you people are so illogical and don't think. A lot of Muslims ask me this because it's a huge stumbling block that keeps them from even believing in Jesus. And so after working with a lot of people, talking that through with a lot of people, I, doing a lot of thinking and reading, I began to understand this a lot more deeply. But even more... I began to see its significance to my Christian life and to actually real life, to all of life. And beyond that, I actually began to find it something that was beautiful and compelling. And it moved from the periphery of my faith to becoming very central to it, very central to it. Um, And that's why I really want to teach on this. Not only my goal is that we would not understand new things about God, but that through this, our love for God would grow. Because I think that will happen. I do have to confess something. Um, My first sermon series as a pastor was going to be on the Trinity. What we're going to do over the next few weeks was the first thing I was going to do. But a local pastor said, are you crazy? You'll lose your job in a month if you teach on the Trinity. So I set that thing aside. I've kept it in my pocket for five years now. And I finally get to pull this jewel out and do it. Um, But I do want you to know that I am also working on my resume these next few weeks just in case... Uh, I were to get run off for for addressing this topic, um, I just want you to know as I've spoken with hundreds of people about this over the years, I have found that many in the end, when we talk about what I'm going to do this morning, find it intriguing and compelling and interesting and like, that's worth thinking about a little bit more. Not everybody, but quite often, even people from a Muslim background who afterwards are like, hmm. I've never thought about that before in that way. So what I want to do this morning is I don't want to just teach you about this. I want to kind of train you. This is a model that you can use in how to relate, how to speak this to somebody. I know it's going to be hard to remember all this. So the nice thing is, is this thing is going to be on video and on YouTube. So if somebody were to ask you, you could be like, hey, watch this YouTube, and then let's have a conversation about it, something that you could use to speak to. So, all right, you ready to dive in? Let's dive in. because here's the reality, the idea of a triune God, it is a mystery to say the least, is it not? It is a mystery. And I want you to know that the fact that it is a mystery, this concept, should not surprise us. It shouldn't faze me, actually. In Ecclesiastes 11.5, in Ecclesiastes 11:5, Ecclesiastes says, As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, this is what the Lord declares. As you, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In Romans 11, 33 to 36, Paul says this, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. So when we come to this, I think we should not be surprised if God is more complex than I can imagine. That really shouldn't surprise me, right? That we should expect that there are things about God which are beyond my understanding, and I should expect a large degree of mystery with Him. Now, there may be, because I know there are people here who are still trying to figure out if this Jesus thing is worth believing and following a lot of times at this point people are like okay that's the cop-out I knew it was coming there's the cop-out now you're safe but that's really not a cop-out I'm going to come back to that in the end um, why I think that's important so with that under your belt I'd like you to open your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy it is the fifth book of the Bible in the Old Testament Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy I'd like you to turn to chapter 6 with me Deuteronomy chapter 6 Because this is the foundational creed, the foundational text of what I'm going to talk about. It's the foundational creed for Judaism. It is called by them the Shema. Um, In Hebrew, Shema means here. That's the first word of verse 4. We're going to be in chapter 6, verse 4. So I would like it if you would stand with me and we will read in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. You can just... uh, You can just listen. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the word of the Lord. We say amen. Stay standing for just a minute. Would you read it with me on the screen? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Okay, you may be seated. The Bible is crystal clear that there is only one God. We call this monotheism. Mono means one. theism means God. Um, so it is the belief in one God who is the creator of the whole universe. And Deuteronomy 6.4, it is not just the foundational text for Judaism. It is the foundational text for three of the world's major religions, not just Judaism, but for Islam and for Christianity um adherence to those three religions make up 45 percent of the world's population and as christians we stand very firmly in that monotheistic tradition the belief in one god the belief in one god but as i've worked with people over the years i've realized here is the big question in fact this is the key question related to this and here it is what is the nature of god's oneness I can speak to a Muslim or a Jew. We agree that God is one, but the question is, what is the nature of his oneness? If God wanted to reveal himself as a solitary one who is alone, who's isolated, right, one and only one, there was a Hebrew word that he could have used in revealing himself this way. It is the Hebrew word Yahid. Would you say Yahid with me? Yahid, the Hebrew word Yahid carries the idea of only or solitary or alone. Um, Interestingly, in Arabic, they have the same word. It's called vahid. Um, But if I were Hebrew and I wanted to say I have one and only one son, which is actually true of me that I have one and only one son, um, I would use this word yahid. We see it used of God in Psalm 8610, where it says, you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. But there's another Hebrew word for one. It is the Hebrew word echad. That H is a hard H. Would you say echad for me? Yeah. If you've got a cold, please don't. Um, But uh, (laughs) this noun is is derived from the verb whose root means to unify, to unify. So echad refers to a oneness of plurality. It refers to a one that is made up of many. And again, of great interest to me is in Arabic, they have this word. And when I speak of this, Muslims who know Arabic, it kind of catches their attention. Um, it is the word in Arabic, etahad. But I want to show you a few examples from the Old Testament. In Judges 20, verse 8, it says this, So all the men of Israel got together and united as one, echad, one man, against the city. Speaking of the construction of the tabernacle and the the wall around it, which was made of curtains, here's what God said in Exodus 26.6. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the 11 curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit, echad. So the 11 become a unit. And it's the same word in Genesis, used in Genesis 2.24 where God says of marriage that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become a had one flesh. So marriage is intended to be a plurality, that com, the oneness that comes out of plurality. Make sense? So then here's the question. Here's the question. When revealing himself in Deuteronomy 6, four, which Hebrew word did God use when he said I am one? Which word did he use? Was it Yahid, that word of a solitary oneness of one and one alone? Or was it the word ichad, which is a oneness of plurality, one made up of many? What would you guess? The Hebrew word that's used is Echad, one out of many. heres I just learned this this week that I find so interesting. One of the greatest Jewish rabbis and thinkers of human history, um, my, mama, my, my, my mamadies, I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, who lived in the kind of the Middle Ages. Um, He put together his 13 articles of the Jewish faith. And in one of them, he talked about the oneness of God. But when he put it in Hebrew, he used the word yahid, not the word echad, because echad did not fit with his understanding of a solitary oneness. And so he changed the word. Isn't that interesting? So. The Bible is clear. God does not exist in a solitary oneness. God is not alone in himself. The Bible's clear on that. Rather, God exists in a oneness of plurality. God exists in community. In other words, God is not a simple one. He's not a simple one. Um, there are hints of this all through the Old Testament. I want to show you a couple. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, very significant text about the creation of mankind. Um, here's what that says. Then God, which is the word in Hebrew, Elohim, which is plural, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in His own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and here's what stands out to scholars when they look at this text it's this mixture of both plural and singular pronouns when referencing God and not just plural and single pronouns both are used of him but even though the word Elohim is a plural word that sometimes a plural verb is used of him which is correct grammar but sometimes a singular verb is used right it doesn't make sense grammatically Um, If I were one of Pat's students, and I wrote an essay, and in that essay, I mixed plural and singular pronouns, and if I used plural verbs with a singular noun or uh, singular verbs with a plural noun, she would give me a bad grade. I I wouldn't do well in that assignment, right? She'd probably make me stay after and have to rewrite it. And it'd be the same with a good Hebrew because they practice the same grammatical rules. I could show you other places where this mixture of singular, plural happens in reference to God. His name, Yahweh, is singular. But in two key Old Testament texts, in Genesis 11 and Isaiah 6, when it talks about Yahweh singular, it uses plural verbs with Him. So there's this sense inside of it of this singularity and plurality, even the way God, the Bible talks about God. I think another hint of the, oneness of the oneness of plurality in God is that occurrence of the angel of the Lord, which we saw him a lot last spring. Remember that? Continually showing up. And the Jewish, Jewish rabbis knew this. It's so interesting to read the things that they wrote about this angel of the Lord, because they knew that he was equated with Yahweh. They knew that. But they also knew that Yahweh is invisible and cannot take a physical form, and it was hard for them to figure that out. I mean, in the book of Exodus, Yahweh, the father said, Yahweh says of the angel of the Lord, my name, who I am is in him, okay? And and that was something they really wrestled with. Every time he encounters people, he is described to be the Lord. That's who he is actually called, but this didn't make sense to them. Um, But we who live post-Jesus now understand that that was actually a pre-incarnation of Jesus taking a physical form um, and walking among those people. So in the Old Testament, we get this hint of this wonderful, mysterious plurality within the unity of the one true God. I could show you other hints in the Old Testament, but I have bigger fish to fry, okay? So here's my next question. If God exists in a oneness of plurality, my next big question is this, well, how many are in that divine community? How many? And I could show you a number of New Testament passages, but I'm going to show you just one. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 where Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name, and it's singular. And if you remember from our series on the name of God, the Jewish people called God, not just Yahweh, that was his name, but they called him Hashem, the name, right? Baptized them in the name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what we learn is that the one God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God unified in three persons. It's frequently illustrated this way. It's at the bottom of the screen, a little bit small to see. But that diagram is trying to show that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. But at the same time, the Father is not the Holy Spirit and is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit and the Father, and the Spirit is not Son and Father. So, in other words, God exists in a complex unity. He exists in a tri-unity. He exists as three in one and as one in three. And if you've read much on this, I'm sure you've seen a diagram similar to this. We could say that God is one in essence, but he's three in persons. One in essence, three in persons. But truth be told... This doesn't make sense to me, right? Truth be told, how can one be made up of three? The math just doesn't add up. Um, To quote one of my favorite movies, I've never quoted this movie, one of my favorites, that idea, it is totally illogical, totally illogical. But remember, we should not be surprised if God is much more complex than I can imagine. That shouldn't surprise me. We should expect there are things about God which are beyond my understanding, things, there should be a large degree of mystery with Him. I should expect that. So, as I, and a lot of people have tried to figure this out. You know, is there anything in the physical world that, where we can see something similar? And I would say, yes, Um, something similar to this. It's water, right? In its essence, it's H2O. So, one in essence, but it takes three different um, it, it, com- it comes in three different states, solid, liquid, solid, liquid, and gas, right? And for a long time, I didn't really buy this one. I'm like, okay, yeah, kind of makes sense. But the truth is, is those solid liquid gas do not exist at the same time. They exist separately. separately. That's not a good illustration of this idea. Uh, until one night, I was having supper. We were having supper, and our daughter, who got her advanced degree in chemistry, I was talking about this, and she said, Dad, actually, what you think about this is not true. She said they can exist at the same time, and she went on to talk about the gas-solid-liquid triple point, a temperature at which all three exist at the same time, at the same time. Um, It is hard to see in this picture, but if you were to stare at it long enough and close enough, you will see at the same time liquid, gas, and solid in the photo. You know... There are other apparent paradoxes in the universe and in the world of science. For a long time, it was thought that light was only a wave. And then scientists discovered it was also a particle. But this is illogical and it makes no sense scientifically. But the truth is, is that is true and it's called the wave-particle duality. It is a paradox in science. Um, If you've read anything in quantum physics, the scientific world is full of paradoxes of things that should not both be true at the same time but which are. And that's why Albert Einstein, he wasn't a great believer of quantum physics, but Albert Einstein said this, I think that's so important about science. He said, I am enough of an artist to draw freely upon my imagination. Imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world and all there ever will be to know and understand. So just back to the math of this thing. You know how can three be one right doesn't make sense um or does it i mean if you think a little bit about math as i thought about this i realized that when i was in first grade i learned the most basic form of math which is addition which is one plus one plus one equals what equals three you should have been in her first service i totally got that wrong i said one plus one plus one equals one my wife's in the back with her grade book i got a red check on that one You know, Garen, we need to meet after and talk about your math skills. Um, But then in second grade, I learned multiplication, which is a higher level of math, right? A higher level of math. And in multiplication, 1 times 1 times 1 equals equals 1. So I'm like, okay, um, I can, okay. Kind of getting this a little bit, perhaps. Um, Let me come at it this way. As humans, we tend to think linearly and simplistically, right? To us, 1 and three are opposites and cannot exist you know, in the same thing at the same time, right? We tend to think either or, and it was that way for a long time in science. It's either wave or it's particle. It can't be both of those at the same time. Um, but this either or thinking frequently leads to false dichotomies and creating things that we actually find out later um, the dichotomy is not true. So I learned that a better way to think about things in a complex way is not linearly like this, but to think in terms of a quadrant because a quadrant helps me to think both and, and not just either or. So there's wave and there's no wave. There's no particle and there's particle. And when I'm thinking linearly, it crosses between these two, they can't coexist. But if I think in a quadrant, I'm like, hmm, maybe wave and particle can both be true, which is what we know is the truth, okay? So a quadrant helps me to realize to think with a little more complexity. So we could do the same thing with the one and three. I mean, when you think about God, if you think of him only as a solitary one, you would be a Unitarian, or if you think of him only as many, plural, then you have polytheism, but if you're thinking linearly, the two both can't be true at the same time. But again, if we were to throw this into a quadrant, we've got the false dichotomy, but if we come up here, you know, one, not one, many, not many, and we're like, is it possible that he could be many and one? The Trinitarianism fits up there, and it works with light, so maybe that's actually true of God. It opens us up to complex realities and thinking more deeply about things. I want to show you one more way to look at this idea of the triunity of God. Um, When C.S. Lewis talks about the Trinity, he does so in terms of of the three dimensions. And I I have found him profoundly helpful. Um, The first dimension is made up only of lines, right? We all know that. The second dimension moves us onto a plane, moves us onto a plane where now we can have a shape. And then the third dimension um, adds depth, and now objects are possible. And what Lewis says, which isn't hard to figure out, that each higher dimension contains the previous dimension in it, but it adds something new to it, something deeper. So I want us to think, I want us to take this idea of Lewis and think about it a little bit. So I want you to imagine that for me for a minute, I want you to think as if we're two-dimensional, okay, and God is three-dimensional. Think of us as flatlanders who live in flatland. We can only think of a flat surface, and we can only think in terms of shapes, okay? So for a flatlander, something can be a rectangle, right, and it can be a circle, but it can't be both, right? Illogical for a flatlander. But if God is more complex, and let's say he exists on a higher dimensional plane than we do in some sense, then when you get to a third dimension, you realize that something can be rectangle, but it can also be circle, right? It can be rectangle and circle, rectangle and yet circle at the same time, rectangle, circle, rectangle, circle. And so when you think of this idea of one and three, you can kind of think the same way. Yeah, one and three to a flatlander, illogical, makes no sense. But if I were to take it to a different level, maybe oneness and three, coexisting, oneness and three. Let me take this a step further, if you don't mind. Um, Remember, a flatlander can only think in terms of two-dimensional shapes, right? And so they can only envision, a flatlander can only envision a square, can only envision a square. But God being more complex in a higher dimension, He exists as a cube. So I want you to imagine God as a cube, right? He's a cube. And He's trying to describe Himself to, to these flatlanders, to us, what it is to be three-dimensional. And so He says, hey, I want you to know what I am is I'm actually a square. I'm actually, I'm one thing, but I'm six squares, And they would be like, What is that? Like, if you're six squares, you're six squares. You're not one thing, right? Um, And then he would say, Well, here, let me show you. Let me show you. I'm actually going to come into contact with you. I'm going to touch you so you can see the reality of who I am. And so God comes into contact with Flatland and pushes himself against it. But what does a Flatlander see? What do they only see? They only see a square. That's all they see. They see the point of contact. They're like, you just said you're six in one. Like, no, you're one single square. It's so obvious, um, the truth. So what is all this six in one talk? And then, um, so God says, well, okay, let me, here, let me try this. I'm actually going to push myself through you so you can experience my depth. And so imagine God not only touches, but if He were to push Himself through flatland the whole way through, how are they going to see Him and encounter Him? As what? As a square. Because that's all they see is that slice that's through there. So they're going to encounter him. Even if he pushes through them, they're still going to say, you're just a square. What's all this talk, this talk of you being six in one? So then God's like, okay, let me try this. I wanna come, I'm going to touch you with multiple sides so you can understand that I'm actually six in one. So God comes to them, and he says, all right, uh, I'm, I'm about ready to touch you. Are you ready, set, go? And then first he touches them with the green side. And he goes, all right, I'm coming back at you, and then he comes with the purple and touches them, and he says, I'm going to do it one more time, and he comes with them at the red side, and he touches them. What do they see? They see three squares, and they're like, you've been talking about being one, but what we really just saw is you're three. You're a blue one, and you're a purple, you're a green one, a purple one, and a red one. Like, what is all this nonsense? So do you see how hard it would be for a being who's living at this flat dimension to even comprehend a being of a third dimension who's even trying to explain or show himself to them? Do you see how hard that task would be? Uh, and that's what God is dealing with with us. Um, so after all that, the things I've over the years I've wrestled with, I'm like, okay, I can kind of get it. It's beginning to make some sense. Though I don't totally comprehend it, I can apprehend it okay don't totally comprehend it but I can apprehend it with a little bit of imagination I'm like that can make sense to me don't totally get it but it makes some sense Um, so that's the way I try to to show people that perhaps this could be the reality of who God is right to open them up to the possibility so is there only one God unequivocally yes the Bible says there's one God and this morning I want to declare to you that God is one, but his oneness is a oneness of plurality. That God exists in community. A community of three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This does not mean, as some think, that this is three separate gods. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that the one God is three. The God is three in one. That God exists in a tri-unity that he exists, how we say it, in a trinity. So, final question that I think was the one I asked for the longest. Even as I came to be like, I can see this. I mean, I don't totally get it, but I, that kind of makes sense. It resonates with me, the possibility of this. The next question I think is, is so what? Okay, now I maybe understand a little better, but it's still going to go on the shelf because it has nothing to do with my real life. Like, so what? How does it impact my real life? Um, The nitty gritty where the rubber meets the road. C.S. Lewis famously wrote this, the Trinity is either the most farcical doctrine invented by the early disciples or the most profound and thrilling mystery revealed by the creator himself, giving us a grand intimation of reality. And I totally agree with that quote. And I stand with the latter part of that. That is where I stand. That the Trinity is the most profound and thrilling mystery ever revealed by the Creator about Himself. It's the most profound thing He's told us about who He is. And it gives me a deep glimpse into the reality of everything, of the whole universe, of the whole universe. I want you to know the Trinity is at the heart of everything. It is the basis of everything. That the whole fabric of the universe is grounded in this Trinitarian God. And it's going to be my hope in the next several weeks to show you how that is actually true. That this is not just a teaching to be like, oh, that's cool. It's something that actually affects my daily life. Leonard Van Der Zee said, the Holy Trinity is the bedrock of, bedrock, sorry, the Holy Trinity is the bedrock reality upon which reality the whole structure of the universe, okay, do you get it? I'm not even sure if I'm reading it right. It's the bedrock of everything. It's the bedrock of anyth- everything. And not just that, but this doctrine is at the core, it's at the heart of understanding God and who is. This is like, to me, almost the first thing you have to understand. Um, let me give you an example about how this bears fruit in even understanding God. And it's the quite obvious, the one, the one we've already talked about, that God is mysterious, that God is mysterious. There's actually a word for this in theology. It's called the inscrutability of God. If I were to take the words of Winston Churchill that he used about Russia and I to play them to God, I would say that God is a riddle inside of a mystery wrapped in an enigma. This idea of God being one and three, this plurality and this unity of Him, it's the mother of all paradoxes. That's the reality of it. But again, I should not be surprised because if God and understanding Him could be contained in my small brain, if I could totally get God up here, He would cease to be God or else I would be like God and trust me, you do not want me to be God. You don't want me running the universe. I can't even run my life half the time, okay? So he would cease to be God if I could understand. That's why John Chrysostom said that a comprehended God is no God. And there's truth in that. Don't don't run too far with that idea. But there's some truth in that. I like what Donald McCullough said in his book, The Trivialization of God. Any God who fits comfortably within my understanding or experience will be a God no larger than I and thus not able to save me from my sin or inspire my worship or empower my service. A God who fits the contours of me will never really transcend me, never really be God. Any God who doesn't kick the bars out of the prison of my perceptions will be nothing but a trivial God. Do you not agree with that? Doesn't he say it well? I want to take this idea of the mysterious God one step further, because this is part of what I learned from this idea of the Trinity, that God is mysterious, Okay? In the famous words of C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, here's what he says about Aslan, about Jesus, about God, that he is not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. I cannot capture him. I cannot domesticate him and put him into a cage, right? 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 I cannot do that. I cannot put him into a box, a theological box of my construction. I can't put him into my own experience totally. I can't put him into a box of my expectations. That's why this doctrine to me is so important. God shatters all of my preconceptions of him. He eludes all of my attempts to define and control him. And just when I think I have him figured out, he does something totally different than I expect. Do you not have this experience in your life? This is experience of all who encounter the great I Am, Yahweh, whether it's Moses, Abraham or Moses, whether it's Samuel or David, Peter or Paul, right? All of them, as they encountered God, were surprised and shocked by things He said and by things that He did. So what this teaches me is God is not mine like a puppet for me to control, He's not a science project for me to just study and figure out. He is a person, a very complex person, who I should strive to love and to obey, no matter the cost, no matter the cost. So it teaches about God. That's just one example. We're going to learn more in the coming weeks. It also not only helps me form my understanding of God, it's not just the heart of that, but it's also the first principle of all Christian teaching. It's the truth that lies lies at the center of the Christian faith, not just what you believe, but actually how you live. And that's what we're going to see over the next few weeks. This has great implications for how you follow Jesus and how you live your life. J.B. Torrance said that the doctrine of the Trinity is the grammar of the church's faith and worship. I love that. So, I just want you to know that this teaching of the Trinity, it has profound implications for your life. It has profound implications. Not just our Christian life and our being in church life, it has implications for your real life, where your life meets the nitty-gritty, right? Where the rubber meets the road. Um, And so that's what I want to do the next few weeks. I want to take this and I want to flesh it out and ask the question, as a body of believers, how does this teaching impact me personally? And as we do that, I am convinced that you will see In him, I'm so captured by who he is. This idea is no longer this airy-fairy thing that's off on the shelf. This is central to what I believe about him. And there is so much, you will see goodness, and there is so much beauty in this. And God is so compelling when you learn about what this is and the implications. So many times when I was dealing with international students, they'd be like, I'm not totally sure I believe that, but I'm interested and I want to learn more. Even students from a Muslim background. We had a group of students who led a group of Muslim students through a Bible study this fall. And they kept asking from the beginning, what about the Trinity? What about the Trinity? And when they finally shared it at the end of the semester, all of them were like, oh my. And they were drawn to it. Not totally accepted it, but they were drawn to it. And that's what I think that you will find. I find God, Yahweh, the great I am in the Bible, to be very compelling and very beautiful. And so that's my heart's prayer is that over the next several weeks that you will come that way too and be like, this thing is so important. I don't always get it 100%. I think I I apprehend it, not totally comprehend it, but the impact that that has on how I believe and how I live is so important. So are you ready for the big journey? You excited about it? I hope you are. I am. I had a dude up here in the first service. we were from college group, Nathan. Nathan was like, he was, he was salivating and biting at the bit. He can't wait to to jump into this. So I'm really excited to to explore this topic even more. So come back next week, okay? Would you stand with me? I would love to pray. Dear Lord Yahweh, Father, Son, Spirit, I stand in awe of who you are. Your complexity this beautiful, this beautiful truth that you don't just exist as a solitary one alone, but you exist in a plurality of oneness. You exist in community. And there's so much about this reality that just has drawn me and captured my heart. I pray that over the next several weeks as we look at this and we pull some other scripture out of your word that speak to this, that, that we would all be drawn into it, that we would stand in awe of you, that we would all fall down in worship of who you are, and that it would affect the way we live our lives, that we would take this to our heart, And we would let the implications of it impact who we are and how we follow you. So, um, I am so thankful for who you are, Father, that you sent your Son to die for my sin. And then, Son, Jesus, how you sent your Spirit to live inside of me and to begin to transform me. So, we pray this in the name of the triune God, in the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. All right, 12th, you are sent.